Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders around the human experience. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore human behavior with our guests that will improve your relationships, your well-being, and your organization. From best-selling authors to researchers to leaders and nonprofits, you will learn insights from the sharpest minds in behavioral science as well as psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. Before we tell you about our guest, we have a couple of things we need to talk about. The first is a project that we've been working on for over a year called Leading Human. Yeah, Leading Human is a compilation of insights culled from dozens of conversations with podcast guests and consulting clients. Leading Human teaches leaders how to be more human-centric in their leadership approach. Right now, frontline managers are facing new and unique challenges as their workers come back to the office or don't come back to the office. And the operational issues of how to set up the right technology or the right mass policy aren't going to be the biggest issues that they're dealing with. The way that leaders interact with their direct report will be the biggest factor in how those employees either stay engaged and are loyal to the organization or not. Leading Human is designed to provide managers with the knowledge and the tools they need to handle the emotional and psychological issues that we will be facing with this coming back into work. Yeah, Leading Human has two big parts, a playbook and a companion workbook. Together, these two documents provide managers with a narrative and a set of tools that help them navigate a chaotic world. The comprehensive pair of documents contains over 180 pages of information, exercises, worksheets, and activities, all designed to educate and to be applied to their work. We are super, super proud of this. And you can go get a free white paper on it, or you can buy the playbook and guidebook. They come as a pair. And in addition to that, we are going to be updating these with different modules. And you can get the return to work module along with this. And you can do that at our website, behavioralgrooves.com. And we have a special offer for Groovers. Woohoo! Kurt and I would like to offer you a discount of $20 off the playbook and guidebook combination for no better reason than, well, we like you and we're glad that you're listening to the show. So just use this promo code Groovers when you place your order on the Behavioral Grooves website. Again, that promo code is Groovers. Okay, on to the second thing we need to talk about, Tim. We just passed our 250th episode. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Isn't it amazing? Like who would have ever guessed that we would have published 250 episodes in under four years? So Tim, that's more than one episode every single week. Dude, that's enough to listen to audio nonstop for 11 straight days of us. Oh my God. Um, I, I can't Imagine anybody listening to us for 11 straight days. That just seems like torture. Yeah, I, I, I think it would never happen, actually. But it's cool just as a way to think about how much content we've created uh, with helping amazing researchers and authors and practitioners from all over the world get their message out. Yeah, and and the listeners. We could not have done oh, it without yeah. you people out there listening to us. For all of you spread among the more than 100, 120 countries that uh, we have listeners in. We are so happy that you've joined us on this journey. God, isn't that the truth? Yeah. And the point is, and the point is that we are grateful. 
Yes, we are. We are grateful to all of you who listen, and we are grateful to those who write reviews or who rate the podcast or who subscribe to our Patreon site or who share an episode with a friend or who ask their students to listen for their coursework or who have joined our virtual monthly behavioral groups meetups. You get the idea, right? All of those things. <laughs> we are grateful for all of that. Thank you. Yes, thank you. We would love to just sit down with each and every one of you and have a coffee and a chat or a tea in Tim's case, but not right now. Now we have to get back to the show. And as you have seen in the last 250 episodes, we are lucky to have some of the most fascinating people in the world sit down with us and have a conversation about behavioral science. Yeah. And in this episode, we had the distinct pleasure to talk to Daniel Almeida. Daniel is a neuroscience researcher in the Douglas Research Center at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, where he does psychological autopsies to understand the molecular impacts of severe childhood trauma on the brains of depressed individuals who have died by suicide. He is also part of the Forbes Ignite program, which is a super cool collection of the best and brightest that study real world problem problems with interdisciplinary teams inside of behavioral science. Yeah. Okay. So let me sum it up this way. Daniel is uber smart and very <laughs> focused on doing work that will make the world a better place for all of us. So we met Daniel through John Levy's influencer salon, and we couldn't wait to have him as a guest on the show. His work on understanding trauma in those who have died by suicide is really, really interesting. And we hope you get some meaningful insight from our conversation with him. Yeah, yeah, we do, Kurt. And we also want to let listeners know that this discussion with Daniel is part of our series on mental health awareness. And to support that, we have links in the notes to a variety of resources available around the world. And on a personal note, both Tim and I have friends who have died by suicide, and after many years, we still miss those people. If you're in crisis, please reach out and get help. Absolutely. With that, Groovers, we hope that you sit back in your coziest chair with a tall pour of mental well-being, and we hope you enjoy our conversation with Daniel Almeida. Daniel Almeida, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much for having me. And as always, we start with our not-so-speedy speed round. So I'm going to begin. Coffee or tea, Daniel? Which which is your preference? Oh, most certainly coffee. Not even a consideration of tea in that one, huh? All right, coffee. Okay, okay. Uh, would you prefer to vacation on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all? Probably no itinerary at all, but there's an explanation. I feel like the rest of my life is really fixed. So on vacation, <laughs> I would want it to be really flexible. So is that flexible? So we've had some people who have talked about this, and it's the flexibility of, of I'm going to place A, and I know I'm staying at this hotel, but I just don't have my days planned. Or is it the flexibility of, I'm just heading off in this direction, and I don't know where I'm staying, and I don't know where I'm going to end up? Where would you be on that no itinerary piece of the landscape? Well, just hearing the second op option is making me kind of anxious. So <laughs> <laughs> I would say the first one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's what we intend when we ask that question. But, you know, we've had some people who go, you know, the all that way. It's like, nope, just put, point me in a direction and I just want to go. So that would be that would be different. Okay. Third question in our not so speedy speed round. Dinner with your favorite athlete, musician, 
or scientist? Who would you rather have dinner with? Most certainly my favorite scientist. Ooh, okay. Ooh. And do we have a name that we can associate with that? All right, who would that be? So we have a name and story, actually. Um, well, let's great. hear it. So great. Dr. Brenda Milner, also known as the mother of neuropsychology. Um, so she was the one that worked on that really famous patient, Henry Malaysen, HM. Uh, he had his sort of bilateral hippocampal removal and wasn't able to consolidate memories. So his, his short-term memory was like 30 seconds and then that's it. And she trained under some of the most famous neuroscientists in Montreal. So Donald O'Heb, the guy that said the neurons that fire together, wire together. Uh, Wilder Penfield, the one that mapped the sensory cortex, created that really weird looking homunculus um, statue. <laughs> and she basically like defied all odds. She was like, I think one of the only females in the Department of Psychology at the time doing a PhD. And get this, she just turned 103 and she's still a faculty at McGill University. She is still so we we that is amazing. We interviewed um Philip Zimbardo at 89, and he's just thinking of of retiring. And we thought, wow, that's pretty good. But 103. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. All right. I would be I would be scared that I'd be eating with her and something would happen and then I'd feel really bad. But that would be fantastic. So and we're we're still trying to get Lila Gleitman, who I think is 94. Wow. Yeah. But that's that's not 103. Maybe we should try and get her on the podcast while we can. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's so the first time I heard her speak, I literally felt like I was transported back in time working with HM myself. Like she oh, wow. recounts her time with him like it was just yesterday. And I actually have a picture with her on Facebook. I'm six foot six. She's probably like four foot something. Oh, <laughs> so you see me just like bending down next to my idol. <laughs> so, yeah. We will we will story. have to see if we can get a link to that and put that in the show notes. So there you go. Definitely. All right. Last speed round question. So for someone who is um, who is struggling with their mental health, does talking about suicide help or hinder them? That's a really fantastic question. So I think the research has really shown that talking about suicide does not increase risk, but talking about an individual who has died by suicide does increase risk. So um, that's why it's really important that when a famous individual dies by suicide, we're really careful to weigh the balances of how much of this is an education event versus how much of this is really just trying to get it, it into the headlines. Um, I think it's really important to sort of balance those, those two things. So for instance, when Robin Williams died by suicide, there was an increase in the number of uh, white males that died by suicide uh, a couple of months or years later. What's the hypothesis behind the, the reason that that happens? When you talk about death by suicide of somebody, obviously, as you were saying with Robin Williams, that increased those uh, subsequent suicides in that reference group. But talking about suicide in and of itself doesn't show that increase. What is the, what's the hypothesis behind why that happens? Yeah, there's been some really interesting models that have been proposed uh, with respect to suicide. Big meta-analyses that sort of, sort of take all of the data and ask what are some of the psychological constructs that associate with suicide. So the first is, um, are individuals in psychological pain and hopelessness? Mm -hmm. Does their pain outweigh their social connection? And then, so that's what often leads to ideation. But then what brings ideation to behavior is 
do they have the means? And sometimes the accessibility isn't just do they have the actual tools to die by suicide, but rather how psychologically accessible is it? Do they know somebody that recently died by suicide? And when that happens, it makes it almost more accessible. So that's sort of the hypothesis that's been proposed. And there is, remember when that show 13 Reasons Why came out, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of controversy in the field because we didn't yet know whether or not depicting like a character dying by suicide would increase risk. I think the jury is still out on that, but Mm. um, that was like the major concern. Well, and I know that there there's clusters, right? If if in particularly in in schools that if one person dies by by suicide, then there are other suicides that happen. And again, that gets to this point that you're just talking about this uh, psychological means that they're more likely to say, "Oh, this is this is something that I could do," not just having the physical means to being able to do it. Is that is that kind of what I'm? Am I? stating that right or am i getting that way mixed up no no that's that's a perfect summary yeah but uh, sometimes in the media we hear terms like copycat and my how do you respond to that daniel how do you know when when they, when they talk about these these clusters that especially among young people yeah i think in general the way that we talk about it in the media is extremely harmful so a lot of the times, so there are like safety guidelines for how you should talk and report about suicide. A lot of the times the reporting is done from a sort of crime reporting angle as opposed to a health reporting angle. And so with the crime reporting angle, they'll focus a lot on the methods through which the person died by suicide. So for instance, Mm. with um, Kate Spade, I saw articles that were just so irresponsible. um, And that of course increases risk. Um, we're instead what we should be doing is focusing more on the problem of of suicide and how big of a problem it is and the fact that you know men are more likely to die by suicide because of the means that they use um so i think yeah there needs to be a global shift in general because some of the media reporting can be quite harmful well and even it for listeners uh one of the things that that daniel pointed out to us at the beginning is even how we talk about it the way we say it and as we you might have heard we're talking we're saying dies by suicide as opposed to commit suicide. Daniel, can you talk a little bit about why we're, we're doing that? Yeah. So commit suicide carries a lot of stigma and shame associated with it. Think about the way that we use the word, right? People commit crimes, they don't commit death. So suicide is a way of dying. And to this day, some countries, um, suicide is still a crime. It was a crime in the past, even in Canada, up until I think 1979. So that term commit carries so much stigma and shame. And it's already referred to as sort of the silent epidemic. And Mm. because of that stigma and shame and prejudice, it makes it really difficult to disclose when you're thinking about it. I'm just curious if you could also expand a little bit on where do you think the media should be or or when we have these kinds of discussions, um, when we're talking about uh, dying by suicide, what should be the focus rather than it was Robin Williams, he was suffering from, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. So I think a lot of the times in the media, you'll see it broken down to sort of one cause like, oh, there was a big divorce recently or, oh, they struggled with depression. But suicide is a very complicated behavior, right? It's not, you know, something that can be broken down to one thing. We can't even find the one gene that causes this behavior. There's multiple factors that are involved. So sort of try and and describe it from this more 
complex approach, right? There are many factors that are involved, but there are also many protective factors as well that we can also talk about. So sort of weighing those two things, both the risk factors and the protective factors, and not really just simplifying it to this one precipitating event that led to the behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So, Daniel, we've taken a deep dive into into suicide here without even providing, you know, really a background on you. So can you help our listeners understand the research that you do and what are you what do you study uh, uh, around not just this, but just study in general? Yeah. So I'm trained as a molecular neuroscientist with an expertise in epigenetics. Epigenetics, I think, is one of the coolest fields in biology because For a long time, we had that whole sort of nature versus nurture debate. Um, Epigenetics says, yes, it's both. And this is the biological mechanism through which it's both. So Mm. the best example of epigenetics would be bees. So if you think about a queen bee versus a worker bee, the big difference is the uh, food that they're fed. And that leads to a whole host of epigenetic changes that changes their biology and their behavior. You also see that in naked mole rats because naked mole rats have a eusocial hierarchy, just like uh, bees do. And all of that's epigenetically determined. So an environmental factor, which can have a substantial impact on our biology and our behavior. That's really what epigenetics is. So I use the brains of individuals who uh, were depressed and died by suicide, but had a history of severe child abuse. And I'm interested in how child abuse sort of epigenetically recalibrates the brain and increases an individual's risk of developing a mental illness later on in life. Yeah, you sent us some great links, Daniel, about this work. So tell us about what are the links between uh, early traumatic, early childhood traumatic experiences and suicide? Yeah, so one of the big papers that came out of our lab, this was in 2009, was related to the HPA axis. So the HPA axis is our stress sort of system, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Everybody's familiar with the term cortisol. That's the HPA axis, basically. And what we found was that a history of child abuse sort of recalibrates one of the feedback mechanisms in the brain. So usually in the brain, you know, our brain can say, too much cortisol, stop because too much cortisol is a bad thing. But child abuse recalibrates this sort of breaking system and doesn't allow that to happen. And what was really cool was that we also went to an animal model of variations in maternal care and found that pups raised with mother dams that show low maternal care also showed the same sort of biology. So it was sort of backs translated to an animal model as well, which just increases the validity of it. That is, I think, amazing when you think about the, because you're not just looking at a correlation, you're looking at the causal aspects of, of some of what's going on in here. And you're looking at this and saying, look, when we can show that this happens, there is a recalibration of this part of the brain that thus leads to this brain functioning changing as they grow up. And then we can see that that lends itself into whatever that behavior is. So you said it's it's you're also looking at at mental health and various other things. Is there other research that you can point to that kind of again shows some of the relationships between childhood trauma and and subsequent mental health? Yeah, so a paper that is currently under review right now, and I'm very excited about it because for some reason, I feel like every neuroscientist has a favorite neurotransmitter and a favorite hormone. 
brain hormone. <laughs> <laughs> and what's yours? Hey, yeah, well, there, here we go. Well, it's here. Okay, so my favorite neurotransmitter is dopamine, just because okay, uh, it's so cool. It's not just involved in pleasure. It's in, involved in our ability to predict reward and, you know, what happens when we don't get the reward that we're waiting for. So dopamine is just the coolest brain neurotransmitter. <laughs> and then my favorite brain hormone is oxytocin. Okay. So okay. oxytocin is often thought of as the love hormone or the bonding yeah. hormone, but mm-hmm. it's gotten sort of a new face, um, you know, maybe in the last 20, 30 years in neuroscience research where we also know that oxytocin is super important for regulating stress. Um, and so, so for instance, I'll give you an example of this. When there's been some research that has shown that when you're really stressed and you use your partner as sort of a scaffold for managing that stress, oxytocin is released and oxytocin is helping to manage that stress. So you're basically using your social affiliation as a way to manage the stress that you're encountering. So I was really interested in the question of, well, how does this social bonding slash stress system change in the brains of individuals with a history of child abuse? And I was looking in a brain area known as the anterior cingulate cortex. This brain area is sort of right in between the cognitive part of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, and then the emotional parts of our brain, which is the limbic system. And so it integrates cues from both of those things. So it's involved in sociocognitive behavior, it's involved in emotional behavior, um, et cetera. And so what I found was not what I expected, which I think is pretty common in research. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the it, it interesting be. part, right? If, it, if everything uh, was expected, then it would be like, ah, this is why do point? we even do this? Because it all turns out that way. But it's when you get those surprises. So what surprised you? Okay, so what I was expecting was that the oxytocinergic system would be downregulated, that child abuse interferes with social bonding. And so this would somehow downregulate the system. What I found, however, was an upregulation in the anterior cingulate cortex. This took a lot of thinking to try and figure it out. And a lot of sort of digging through the literature, clinical literature, animal literature, human literature, to really come up with a hypothesis as, why, as to why this could be the case. And so what it seems to be, or at least our interpretation of the finding, was that oxytocin is both involved in stress, but it's also involved in social bonding. So the adversity that an individual experiences during childhood abuse is a very stressful experience. And so the oxytocinergic system might be upregulated to help deal with that stress because it's an anti-stress hormone. But the problem, though, is that now your brain is upregulating a hormonal system that's also involved in social bonding. Social bonding in the context of being in an abusive home is not a good thing. And actually, there's been some research to show that upregulation of the oxytocinergic system in certain brain areas can make an organism more sensitive to social adversity. So it almost has this sort of downside of now you have this social bonding system that's upregulated when you don't actually have safe and secure relationships to build. And we also went to a rat model to show the exact same thing. Um, so male rats that were raised by dams that show low levels of maternal care also showed this sort of upregulation of the oxytocinergic system in the same brain area. Okay, so uh, 
<laughs> I love having a conversation about, you know, with 70% of the words that I don't understand. Well, let's break this down just a little bit, okay, if, if, if we could. We've got uh, the, the mind of uh, children who are abused. And we would think that oxytocin to help regulate stress would be on the increase, right? They would upregulate it. That's what the expectation was. That's the new one. That, that's that's the new one. That's 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 what was was discovered. Is that oxytocin rises right to help offset this uh, the stress? Am, am I with it so far? Yep. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not exactly. Sure. I'm near. I'm nearing the edge of the cliff. So so what happens next as that child grows into adulthood? What what happens with their sort of their mental health? And, and general ability to have these social bonding experiences. So it might be that upregulation leads to them increasing their sort of capacity for social bonding during the actual trauma. And it's sort of during the trauma that that's really maladaptive. Fast forward many years down the line, you know, we're not sure what this would would do to the individual's brain, but it's it's sort of maybe making them more sensitive to the adversity um, that they're experiencing. So that's sort of the the hypothesis. That thank you. And this is might sound a little strange, but I have a neighbor who is uh, an attorney that works in the uh, and he prosecutes parents who are abusing their children and uh, and adults who are abusing their children. And he says that like his heart breaks the most when the kids are in that six to ten year old range at a greater rate than when then they're teenagers or younger. And, and I'm wondering, is, is his response unrelated completely, or is there some correlation possibly to what actually, what the trauma actually does to our, to our brains in those six to 10 year olds versus the older or younger? Does it matter? That's a really great question. And I'm thinking that your attorney neighbor might have a background in neuroscience because spot on, <laughs> absolutely spot on. So it's during that time frame where the brain is undergoing so, so, so many changes, right? We see synapses being built. We see synapses being modified. We see myelin, which is the thing that insulates neurons, being deposited mm -hmm. and refined right during that developmental window. And so there's some really interesting hypotheses out there right now as to how child abuse might alter brain development. I think for a very long time, neuroscientists have thought, you know, child abuse is toxic for the brain and it leads to toxic effects on the brain. Um, but a more recent hypothesis that I'm quite a fan of is that the child's brain adapts to the adversity that they're experiencing. And that adaptation is actually quite favorable to deal with the stressors that they're currently living in. So they upregulate, you know, threat detection systems in their brain. They are constantly hypervigilant in order to deal with the adversity. And so it's actually quite adapted. The brain changes are very adaptive if we think about it from mm. this perspective. But then fast forward 20, 30 years where the adversity is no longer there, but your brain has adapted to an environment where there's lots of adversity. Now you're constantly looking for threat when threat isn't actually there. So that hypothesis is often referred to as the sort of environmental mismatch hypothesis, where mm. your brain is calibrated for one environment, but now you're in a completely different environment with completely different needs and expectations. 
Oh yeah. Fantastic. Go ahead. Go ahead, Kurt. So Tim asked a crazy question and it spurred me to think of something that might be a crazy question too, because again, I'm not not well versed in in this area, but I think I saw I don't know a, a, a New York oh, what's that police show the uh, I don't I forget NYD Blue or whatever it is NYP Blue right where they had uh, showed this basically abusive uh, child was being abused had the two parents in there and the child was going to one of the parents and then they realized that the, then they figured oh it was the other parent that was doing the abusing. But in the twist of their little melodramatic on on television, it was actually the person that the child was going to the person that was abusing them, that they were giving them the hugs and and showing them the love. And it just got me when you were talking about the up, you know, the the, the uptick of the the oxytocin. Oh, my God, I can't even talk today of that. And I have no idea if that is even true. But I was wondering if there's any research on that. Are our children more? particularly in that six to 10 age, are they are they looking to gain the affection of those people who are abusing them compared to the other parent who may not be? Or is that just a wild television thing? Or is there, or don't you know if there's research on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I'm less familiar with sort of that space, but I really do think it's it's quite a fascinating question. And, you know, I think a lot of the times TV shows tend to overindulge in. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought that was just <laughs> yeah, crazy. But, but yeah. one thing that I will say that might sort of hit upon that, but in adulthood. So during my training as a scientist, I also got to do a couple of clinical internships where I got to follow psychiatrists in order to just ground my research better to actually understand what mental illnesses look like in living people. And, you know, there was one time where there was a patient that was clearly in a very toxic relationship. And when the session was over, I had asked the psychiatrist, like, why? Why stay in a relationship like this? And what they had argued was that sometimes we build these self-schemas of, of who we are as people. And if your self-schema is one where you're hopeless, you're helpless, you know, mm. nothing is working out for you, then it might be more comfortable to look to somebody that confirms those biases about ourselves than somebody that, you know, tries to challenge them. So I thought that that was really fascinating and it really allowed me to ground my research into something that was so real. I would never expect something like that to happen. But when you actually work with patients and you sit in a room with a patient, you, you really start to understand how does all this play out in a really complex social world? And so that probably leads into the, you know, as a child being traumatized, you form a self schema, a self image of yourself that then you're looking for those reinforcements later on in, in, in life. Again, that what did you call it? The environmentally, um, you know, mismatched yeah. you know, aspect of that. So, yeah, cool. Yeah. So kind of keeping in, in this idea of of, of the trauma, uh, Oprah Winfrey and, and Bruce Perry uh, published a book called "What Happens to You." I don't know is this is this familiar? It's it's pop to some degree. It's pop kind of literature, right? But it's Oprah um, Winfrey, it's, it's not Oprah. somewhat pop. It is totally <laughs> well, pop. She's backed up with Dr. Bruce Perry, but but they they distinguish between uh, big T trauma, you know, these uh, cataclysmic events. Uh, 
you know, uh, natural disasters or significant physical abuse versus small T trauma, you know, and, and is there, what, what does your research say about uh, anything about the differences in these kinds of trauma? Yeah. So research is starting to show that both using animal models and humans, um, I was going to say human model, but that didn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> so at animals and humans, the type of trauma, um, matters, the frequency, the duration, the age as well. So all of these factors play a role, even biologically, right? And so, yeah, I think it's interesting to see that there's this sort of, there's this, you know, complex milieu of factors that play into what is, what is the actual biological impacts of, of, of trauma. But certainly, you know, I think a lot of the times during COVID, a lot of people have, have come up to me and asked me, like, how is COVID impacting our mental health? And what mm. I think is that, you know, all of us have different biologies. We all have different, you know, social support systems. We all have different thresholds for stress. But one might argue that we're all going through some form of a collective trauma together. And it's just that some people are more resilient because their brains were built that way. They might have stronger social networks. And so it's impacting them to a greater or lesser extent than other people. So yeah, I certainly think that, you know, the type, the duration, the amount of time has a pretty big impact. But then there's also, you know, the resilience factor. And mm. there's now starting to be research on the neuroscience of resilience. And a lot of really interesting stuff is coming out of that, that space right now. So is that resilience, again, given the, the focus of your work, I'm assuming that part of that is biological, but then some part of that is is the nurture aspect of how you were raised and different aspects of that. Yeah, most certainly. There's it's probably the resilience is probably just as, if not more, complicated than susceptibility. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually some work using animal models where what you can do is you can put animal animals through a model known as chronic social defeat. The chronic social okay. defeat is like um, a social stressor um, for, for mice. And what you can do is you can plot a natural distribution of how these mice end up reacting to the chronic social defeat. Some react very much and will develop hopelessness and other sort of depressive-like behaviors. And then others won't react very much. And you can then take their brains and ask, well, what is it about the resilient mice? And in one more recent and brilliant study, what they found was that the biological signatures of resilience were actually more, there was more genes involved, there were more networks involved than the biological signatures associated with susceptibility. And so it seems as though resilience might actually be its own thing, right? Like for a very long time, we thought that resilience was simply the absence of responding to something negative. And so in that case, resilience is almost like sort of a shield. But now mm -hmm. we like to think of resilience as almost like a sword. Like you, you have like adaptive changes that are probably even more complicated and greater than the changes that are observed we're observing in susceptibility. Wow. Are, th are there any specific habits that you can think of that could help us develop healthier brains? Yeah. Yeah. That's 
feel like that's probably one of the most common questions I get in an interview. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, okay. it's, it's, it's great because usually I'm not prepared for it. But then ever since I started getting them, I was like, I need to dwindle down everything that I know about neuroscience into like three or four things. So, <laughs> so years of research are going into this next act, it, it, you know, this, answer, folks. Yeah, so just know that. Yeah, here yeah, we go. The next two and a half minutes are condensed from the last 20 years of work. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So like neuroscience informed strategies that are good for brain health. The first is sleep and healthy sleeping patterns. So making sure that your circadian rhythm is usual, right? Shift workers tend to have really bad mental health because of the constant changing in their circadian rhythm. So, and mm. sleep is just good for our brain in general, right? Like that's when synaptic connections are being built in the hippocampus, which is the memory part of our brain. That's when, you know, we're getting rid of um, waste products that have built up during the day. So sleep in general is very, very, very important. The second would be exercise. So a lot of research has shown that the brain areas that tend to be involved in things like depression and things like dementia are the same brain areas that are nourished by exercise. Mm -hmm. And there are a whole host of factors that are increased in the context of exercise in these really susceptible brain areas. So regular exercise, and the secret is that you have to enjoy it. So don't do an exercise that you're Whoa. just there because you're like, I want to get big muscles, but rather you actually like the thing that you're doing. So I'm a big hiker. I love hiking. And I anecdotally find that after I go for a nice long and tough hike, my mental health is better for a couple of days following that. So cool. Exercise is cool. really important. And another important thing. So there was a study that showed 120 minutes per week outdoors. Doesn't have to be one day. It could be spread out across the entire week. It could be all in one day. But as long as you're spending at least 120 minutes outside doing something, this is really good for your, your brain as well. And then the final thing, noise pollution. So we don't realize this, but noise is actually really bad for our brains and also bad for our health in general. So just taking like half an hour out every day to have no noise at all. I know that like we're in this sort of information economy where we always want to be listening to something or checking apps or doing something. And it's all this noise constantly that our brain has to filter out. So just taking like half an hour a day, sitting down, no noise at all, could be walking through a forest. Actually, you could do both at the same time, right? You get your 120 minutes per week <laughs> while also not having noise. <laughs> yeah. So I think those would be like the, the big brain health, optimal brain health. Oh, I'm going to add one more just because I think it's important as well. Social support. Um, so <sighs> social support has been unequivocally linked to better mental health. Actually, the that big longitudinal study, the Harvard study that ran for like 80 years or something like that, mm -hmm. um, what they found in the participants was that the quality of their social connections um, mattered the most for their well-being. And what they also found is that as these participants got older, they tended to not sweat the small stuff. So they did things because they made them happy, not because it you know made them famous or uh, made them a lot of money. They did things because it just truly made them happy. 
And that was also associated with well-being. Is there a hypothesis around why being outdoors has the impact? I mean, you've talked about exercise and it, you know, obviously it, it helps in those certain brain areas. You can see the sleep elements of this social pieces. You can kind of kind of fit there. But what is it about being outside? Do they have a rationale for why they're thinking that, Daniel? Any idea? I was actually thinking about this yesterday while hiking. It's funny. <laughs> Outside. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. 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 Well, I was kind of mad because I went on a hike um, with my friend and the hike was really tough. And so yeah. I was like, there's got to be something that's good that's going on in my brain if I'm investing so much into this and almost dying while falling off of a cliff. <laughs> so um, I think that, you know, there might be the confound of you're often exercising when you're outside. And mm. you're often reducing noise pollution when you're outside. So there's a lot of variables that we need to consider or, or control for. But I also just like to go back to the evolutionary aspect of human evolution, right? Like what I think is that like humans, we evolved really quickly this beautiful brain structure that allows us to think and problem solve and communicate and experience complex emotions but it also allows us to experience like psychological pain and to you know feel guilt and all these really toxic things for our brain as well. Actually, the prefrontal cortex is part of what's called the telencephalon, telen meaning into the future. And so mm. we have this ability to, yeah, plan into the future, but also worry about the future as well. Um, and sometimes I think we just need to get back to our evolutionary roots of being outside, not worrying about that thing that's coming in, you know, a week from now. Obviously, that's more easier said than done. But mm. there's like clear research, like being in a, even a forest for half an hour reduces cortisol levels significantly. Yeah. So not entirely sure what it might be, but it, it's a real finding. That's fantastic. Yeah, that is just fantastic. Kurt, do you, you, are, were you sitting on the edge of one more question? So uh, before we came on and started recording, you were talking about that you are the, the university where you work has the second largest brain bank in the world. Tell our listeners, what is a brain bank and and why why would we care? Why What does that matter? Yeah, so... The brain bank is basically a place where we store human brain samples. And these brain samples are from individuals with neurological diseases, individuals with psychiatric diseases, control subjects that had no history of diseases, or at least we think had no history of diseases. And a subset of these samples are also very well characterized using something called the psychological autopsy method. Usually mm. when I mention and I give guest lectures and I mention psychological autopsies, people are taken aback because <laughs> who knew you could do an autopsy on the mind? <laughs> so yeah. these yeah. are really cool. You sort of conduct interviews with next of kin, usually three next of kin, and collect information on the life experiences of these individuals. Um, if they had a diagnosis, we also collect information on their toxicology. Um, so what type of drugs that they were they taking in the last three months. And we can then bring this sort of rich data into the lab to study the human brain samples and try to connect um, some of these sort of life experiences and factors with their brain samples. What's really cool about the psychological autopsy method is that 
it's not only used in research. There are clear sort of implications for it as well. So there was a psychological autopsy that was done by an association, a suicide association in the U.S. And what they found was they did an autopsy of individuals that had been dying by suicide near train tracks. And what they found through the psychological autopsy was that I think something like only three of the individuals that had died by suicide at these train tracks were carrying a cell phone. And so, you know, when you go to like subway stations, you see these signs that say, you know, if you're thinking about suicide, here's a phone number to call. But that's not very practical if you don't have a cell phone, right? So that Mm, might encourage us to put publicly accessible phones at these areas with these signs as well. So psychological autopsy methods are used both in research, but can also have clear implications for policy as well. That's cool. That's very cool. Uh, I love hearing that. Going back to this idea of noise pollution, I'm just curious if whether or not you listen to music while you work. <laughs> that's a that's a good question. So I can't. I actually can't listen to anything. I'm really easily distracted while while <laughs> while working. And you know, I think that whole multitasking sort of debate that you know, oftentimes people will say that they're multitaskers. I I think I think evolutionarily we're all bad multitaskers. So, yeah, I can't listen to music. Disrupts me. I listen to music outside of work, but while driving, for instance. Okay. If you had to, let's say you're going to be on a desert island. So you have lots and lots of time to have no noise pollution. Zero. You have beautiful outdoor spaces. What three artists would you take with you to listen to on on that desert island? Let's let's just say for a year. Okay. Interesting. I am a really big fan of like Motown. My dad raised me basically waking me up on Saturday mornings, blasting Gladys Knight, Whitney Houston. (sighs) And actually my dad's the reason why I got into neuroscience. So anytime I listen to this music, it sort of, I have this like deep emotional connection to it as well. And so I would probably have to choose artists that I was mostly raised with. So yeah. Well, uh, yeah, th- that's a fantastic just path to go down. Do you get into any of the old school stuff? The Supremes, Temptations, Stevie Wonder, uh, uh, it, speaking of Motown? No, is it? No, I love it all. I love, I absolutely <laughs> love it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Take the Motown uh, kind of mixtape, right? Yeah. There you go, as you're, as you're going for that. <laughs> yeah. So, Daniel, we interviewed uh, Pablo Ripolis and Ernest Mashararo, and I mispronounce their names every single time, so I apologize, Ernest and Pablo. Uh, but they had done some really interesting research on reducing of stress levels through music during the pandemic. Okay. And so I'm wondering if you know of any research uh, that relates to music and stress level reduction or any kind of work that you've done that where you have seen any connection or correlation between music and and what's going on in the brain. Yeah, that's so I've not done research on music in the brain, but a really good friend of mine actually studied the brains of expert musicians and expert dancers that had something like 20 years of experience in both fields. And she was looking at sort of the neuroplastic changes that occur in the brains of these individuals. And this was, of course, not my my area of expertise, yep. but it seemed like the brain areas that you would expect to have changed were changed by being a musician and then also being uh, an expert dancer. 
as well. I've also come across a couple of studies with soundtracks that have been shown to clinically reduce anxiety levels. And so when I came across that study, I like sent it to everybody in my life. Basically, like, listen to this <laughs> while you're stressed. <laughs> yeah, so, fantastic. Yeah, We want the playlist. We want the studies. Okay. And we would love an introduction to your, your friend's work, too. Yeah. That would be fantastic. Yeah. But in the meantime, we want to thank you very, very much for your time, Daniel. This has been a delight and a, a great education. And we, we are grateful that you have been our guest on Behavioral Groups today. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Daniel, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our molecularly dissected brains. That's a mouthful. Wow. I didn't, it didn't come out. <laughs> you could see it was a mouthful right there, man. Oh my gosh. Daniel is uber, uber, uber smart. And yeah, that's just crazy. And, and you know what I love? I mean, he's working on really on a topic that could be pretty depressing. Yeah. Uh, people who have died by suicide. And yet, man, he's so upbeat and optimistic. And I, I just love that disposition. It was inspiring for me. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. So so what do you want to talk about, Tim? Let's start by just addressing this idea. Uh, first of all, we're going to use that term, people die by suicide or death by suicide throughout. Uh, but suicide's complicated. It yeah. is complicated behavior. And one of the things that really hit me is that the research that's being done recently is helping unfold the story. We're getting beyond just the simple things like, oh, you know, if you know someone in crisis, just talk to them and that will reduce their risk for suicide. That's That doesn't seem to be actually a, a real thing. Um, so, but, so we need more research. I guess that's really the sort of the story. Yeah. And I, I think the research is really important because the more that we can understand this, the more that we understand why people die by suicide and what is the you know contributing factors to that the better we are to have interventions that will hopefully help and i think it's daniel's work is is really important i think all the other work that is out there is really important and those are things that i think are really you know good for us as a culture as a as a world and so kudos to everybody who's doing that very difficult work yeah yeah what else did you want to talk about? I wanted to talk about environmental mismatch hypothesis. Super cool. Super cool. Super valid. Super important in our world, right? In, in some ways, it's almost like talking to an anthropologist about, about our historical DNA not matching you know, the world 40,000 yeah. years ago. But I just, it was, it, I had never heard of it before. And so I did a little research in there, you know, so, that, so some of that was developed by uh, Matthias Schmidt talking about this different pieces and then there's some stress coping mismatching hypotheses that go along with this but it's a really interesting concept this idea that hey the environment that i was raised in had an influence on my brain and how my brain is wired and how i view the world and then when i get into an environment doesn't match that initial environment my brain is still wired the way that it was from that initial development piece, which yeah. means that, A, I could be wired to, to be overly uh, cautious or overly fearful or overly anxious, and I no longer need to be. And so I have those negative aspects. And it could also go the other way where right. I'm overly confident and, and different pieces and I need to be more uh, you right. know, cautious and fearful in some of those situations. So I think it's just a fascinating thing 
when you think about the way that our brains develop both from we have a biological component with our DNA, but then those genes are expressed through different ways and the environment that we live in. And then just our environment ourselves is, is, you know, we have learned things and learned behaviors. Um, so it's, it's pretty crazy. I couldn't agree more. This, this adaptability is fantastic. And in some ways, we need to actually bring that more into our adult lives and not continue to rely on the old stuff. Uh, last well, 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 I think on that. So one more thing on that is if you think about this, this, you know, we always kind of try to change ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. It's always this idea that, oh, if I was just more persistent, if I was just more outgoing, if I was just more X, then I would be better and I would have a better life. Oh, yeah. And a part of this is saying, you know what? Maybe it's not you. I mean, it, it is you. There's, it's oh. always about you, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, it's about me. I don't well, know about I mean, you. In it's particular, I was talking about you, Tim. It's always about you. <laughs> right. You know how that works. Yes. But it's about potentially looking at the environment that yeah. you find yourself in. And we've talked about context and how much context matters. But maybe it's about changing the environment um, to fit you as opposed to changing you to fit the environment. And I'm sure there's, if we looked at this in more and we talked about it more, it's obviously going to be some combination of both, but you have to be able to think about things from that larger perspective, that larger picture of saying, all right, I can do some things about me and how I interpret the world and and that, and maybe I can relearn some things and reprogram Mm -hmm. my brain. But I can also put myself in a better situation and I can put myself in a better environment that is going to fit with how I am working. And again, you don't want to do that if it's a negative aspect, but right. on a positive thing, you, if we purposeful about that, I think that's cool. So yeah, square, right. pe- square peg in a round hole, like stop, you know, mm-hmm. just go, go for the, the square peg into the square hole or the round peg in the round <laughs> hole. A square know? hole? How do you have a square hole? You can have a square hole. I could. Can you? I, I think I can. I guess, I guess you're right. Okay. <laughs> I, I can dig a square hole. I've dug square holes in the backyard. Let me put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my gosh! All right. Hey, la- okay. So lastly, I wanted to talk about the the healthy brain habits that Daniel talked ah, about: yes. sleep, exercise, spending time outdoors, noise pollution, social support. Oh my gosh! These are the universals. Every kind of researcher, every kind of a person who is interested in health in any way comes back to these things. And I am so glad that we get reminded from all these different perspectives. This, this is the core. This is it. But do we change him? Well, hell no. Do, do, just, do gonna... we actually do these things? And that I think is the no. key piece of this because right. be, before we got on online, you were talking about how simple these are, right? It's sleep, yes. it's exercise, it's being outside in nature. It's, um, noise pollution, which I thought was fascinating because yeah, I've not just, heard that one before. So just, just getting some time for quiet yeah. and then the social support. We've, we've heard this over and over and over and it's not, you're not asking to rebuild the world. This is just some right. simple habits and routines to get yourself into. And yet we don't do it. So what, what do we have to do in order to make sure that we implement these things in our life so that we do have a healthier brain, a healthier life, all of those factors. What can we do, Tim? Maybe have some, maybe start some habit tools like, uh, you know, when then statements or our tiny habit kind of a thing, you know, uh, maybe just get started with something as simple as uh, every time I 
you know, walk into the kitchen to get a glass of water. I'm going to go outside and breathe deeply for five minutes. Hmm. You know, something like that. What else? Yeah. Well, I think there's just developing an action plan. And so putting something in place that is specifically around these five things that Daniel talked about. You sound like you've been doing a lot of corporate work lately with the action plan. Corporate (laughs) action planning. We'll we'll worksheet that out. There we go. I do. I work with my consulting clients, you know, I work with those companies and that's, but, but that's true. Some truth in that. Right. So if we, if we actually put a plan together, we're going to be much more likely to follow through on that plan. Now, to your point, we need to build in some behavioral science hacks so that we're not yeah. just expecting our willpower to do this. Maybe we set the yeah. environment up. Maybe we use those when-then statements. Maybe we do some temptation bundling. You know, Maybe we right. put some elements into this. But I think the really interesting pieces, all right, so sleep and exercise, those are things that we can definitely um, just build some healthy habits around, right? Yep. Going outdoors as is, is, is well, right? Make sure that you go for a walk outside and figure out how to build that into your day or a bike ride outside or doing something outside, but not just staying inside all the time. Right. You know, make a, a, a routine of spending 30 minutes in the morning without any noise on. Don't turn on the radio. Don't turn on the television. You know, use that time to meditate or whatever else. That is another helpful thing, doing some mindfulness exercises. And then go out and join, you know, some social groups, yeah, you know, get yeah. some nonprofits, go to a meetup. Um, maybe a behavioral know, grooves meetup. Maybe, well, you definitely know, for- a behavioral <laughs> grooves meetup and right. join the community and, and make larger, you know, circle of friends or connect with those people in your life that you have lost track of or maybe aren't connecting with them as much as you need to be. It makes a difference. Yeah, it, it does. To- totally, totally makes a difference. All right. Sorry for being a, a father figure and telling everybody what to do, but <laughs> damn it, go out there and do that. All right. I, I think that's a, a wrap. What do you think, Tim? Is that, that a wrap? Is, it, I think totally that's a wrap. That's, that's fantastic. So we want to thank you all for listening and hope you found this discussion with Daniel helpful and insightful and really, really hope that you got some value out of this. Yeah. And, you know, and just as a reminder, if you are suffering from some kind of mental health issue or, you know, someone who might be, please check the notes from this episode and seek help. It's really, really important to act on it. Yes. Yes, Tim. I think that is true. Make sure you go out there. And and look at some of the research and get some of the support that is out there. There's lots of places that can help. And you know what? We need to destigmatize all this and make sure that it's good. And we encourage yeah. you just go out and and reach out to people who are out there to to really help you or help your loved ones. And with that, we hope that everyone who listens to this episode takes some time this week and go out and find your groove after a good night's sleep and getting some exercise and going outside and having some social support and making sure you spend some time in quiet, but go out and find your groove after that. All right. Thank you, everyone.